0: hello and welcome to keeping up with the pace an educational podcast aimed at increasing the skills knowledge and capability of health professionals across western australia each month i will be joined by guests whom will bring with them skills knowledge amazing research both local international and national in a bid to enhance the skills and knowledge of our listeners. Our aim is to share the word of palliative care far and wide throughout our state and ensure that all health professionals are prepared to care. Our goal is to not only improve health professional knowledge and understanding of palliative and supportive care education, but also improve outcomes for the people who matter most, our patients and their families. We hope that we can delve into the depths of our communities and build some strong blocks that will enable us to communicate better, improve patient outcomes, cross collaborate through networks and enhance all of the amazing work that is currently going on in our state. Our aim is to share information through knowledge and understanding. We hope that you can join us. And if you have a question or would like to get in contact with us, please feel free to email us at pace at cancerwa.asn.au. I would like to commence our podcast today by acknowledging our traditional custodians of the land that we come to you from today that being the land of the Wadjuk people from the Noongar Nation. I would like to pay my respects to their Elders past, present and those emerging in the space. And most importantly, I would like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal people living and working in this area and across our beautiful country wherever you may be joining us from. According to recent studies by the Australian Medical Association and RACGP, Healthcare workers in Australia experience high levels of burnout. Multiple Australian studies have found burnout rates of more than 50% amongst healthcare workers. Rates are notably lower in general practice. However, rates amongst junior doctors indicate that one in three junior doctors has reported wanting to leave their profession. In this episode, we will focus on self-care and why it is important for health professionals. We will look at some of the common barriers and myths that prevent us from practicing it. We will look at how we can overcome them and create a sustainable self-care plan that suits our needs and preferences. We will be joined by Dr. Catherine Chewles, an accredited instructor of mindfulness-based stress reduction through the medical school of the University of Massachusetts. Dr. Chewles is an experienced educator and program developer with several years experience as an academic at Universities in Western Australia and Victoria. Dr Chules has been providing mindfulness and compassion training in Western Australia for over 10 years. She will share with us her journey of discovering and implementing self-care strategies, including the various programmes she has written and delivered for staff at Royal Perth Hospital, Bentley Hospital and through the Palliative and Supportive Care Education team here at Cancer Council Western Australia. Some of the topics will include how to, look, how to cope with stress, burnout, compassion fatigue and other issues that may affect our well-being and performance as health professionals. So if you are a health professional and would like to improve your quality of life, reduce stress levels, enhance your professional satisfaction, then I hope this episode is for you. So good morning and welcome to the third episode of the PACE, Keeping Up With The Pace podcast for health professionals in Western Australia. Um, this morning, I'm very excited to have Dr. Catherine Childs with me um, to discuss a little more around health professionals coming up to the Christmas period, stress, burnout, compassion, compassion fatigue, and all things um, relating to our spiritual and emotional well- well-being. So Catherine, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Um, so, I guess as we appro- um, approach the Christmas period, I had hoped to discuss the impact of compassion fatigue and what compassion training is, and perhaps offer our listeners some practical skills in dealing with this and recognizing it. Um, so, can we start off by discussing what is compassion fatigue?
1: Mm, yeah, sure. In simple terms, I think most people think of compassion fatigue as what occurs when our system, and I, by that I mean our body, our heart, our mind, Is overwhelmed by the trauma and the suffering of others especially those that we're serving Um, and so you know from that definition we can see that compassion fatigue is commonly associated with professions such as disaster relief workers child protection workers and of course very relevant to this podcast health professionals and in fact the term was first coined in relation to hospital nurses who were repeatedly being exposed to patient emergencies. And that was um, in the early 90s. So it's a relatively new um, concept. And some of the symptoms um, which can be useful to know about uh, include mental and physical exhaustion, anger, irritability, anxiety or depression, intrusive thoughts, sleep problems, diminished ability or interest to care for others. And that one can be really hard hitting when we're a person in a caring profession. Emotional numbness, decreased capacity to experience sympathy and empathy, um, and dysfunctional coping behaviours. And we can think of a number of different ways that um, those coping behaviours might arise. And there are others. Now, those symptoms which I've just named, of course, are symptoms for a variety of other conditions as well as um, compassion fatigue. And as an aside, whatever the cause, if we're having symptoms such as those, it's a really important wake-up call, something telling us something's not right, mm. something needs to change. Yeah, um, thanks,
0: Catherine.
1: And I just wanted to say a little bit about uh, compassion fatigue because some researchers are questioning whether it might be more accurate to use the term empathy fatigue or empathic resonance fatigue Um, and I can give a little bit of background to that some of the neuroscience that's being done at the Max Planck Institute in Germany and other places has shown that empathy and compassion are quite distinct are quite distinct both in terms of what we feel what we experience and also what happens in the brain So empathy is that resonance that we feel for another. Claudine, if you're feeling happy or sad and I'm empathic, I feel some happiness or sadness. Mm -hmm. My feelings mirror yours. If you're excited and exhausted, I resonate with those feelings. I put myself in your shoes. Compassion on the other hand is a complex human response to suffering. It's often seen or described as a motivational system. It involves our sensitivity to the other's suffering and an intention to help alleviate that suffering. So empathy is, uh, you could see it as one component of compassion, but compassion is a much more action-oriented feeling. And the neuroscience research shows that empathy activates an empathy for pain region in the brain, circuitry in the brain, whereas compassion activates circuitry that's involved with reward, positive effect, affect, so positive feelings, affiliation. So a much more positive um, experience in a subjective uh, sense. So you can see why people who are um, looking at the neuroscience of compassion from um, that perspective might see compassion in a more positive light and see that the compassion burnout might be better described as empathic resonance burnout or something like that.
0: Okay. And I guess, I suppose from a health professional perspective, they do appear similar when, in terms of traits and responses, that the person might feel. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I suppose as um, how can health professionals? Oh, sorry, what was that? So when we say the compassion training and things like that, how can health professionals seek? I suppose, compassion training or mindfulness training as a health professional. So what can they do to help themselves?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, And I think it is now very much moving into the mainstream. Um, But before I look at some of the details, I just might recognise that it is a relatively new um, part of health professionals training. Um, particularly in Perth, um, even though it is becoming mainstream in medical education across the world and other other types of health professional education. And when I look back, I did the training at the medical school of the University of Massachusetts to become a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. And it was in 1979 that Jon Kabat-Zinn brought mindfulness into a healthcare context. And it has taken a little bit of time to, to make its way to, to other parts of the world. Yeah, wow. So just just naming that, it, it has been around for a while. And even yeah. in Perth, um, I and other people have been engaged in this training. Um, I've, I've been running uh, mindfulness and compassion training at Royal Perth Hospital, Bentley Hospital, through the Cancer Council. I've been involved in some of the training of the... Um, at the Medical School of the University of Notre Dame. So it is something that is becoming embedded uh, in in training of health professionals in Perth as well.
0: And I guess that can only be considered as a positive move,
1: recognising that we need
0: it. Do you think Mm. COVID has actually helped? I know I'm throwing new questions at you, Catherine, but do you think COVID in some ways has shone a bigger light perhaps on health professionals and that stress that they are under at work and that you know that constant I suppose influence of outside media and things that is added to that stress do you think it's become more acceptable now because as an as a human human society or as worldwide we have seen such devastation through covid that it's nearly more acceptable or do you think it was always going to come to the fruition and come to the forefront
1: that's a great question. I suspect you're right, Claudine, that what Clover did was bring the stress of health professionals into everybody's lounge room mm. um, so that it's not now something that we can ignore, it's something that has to be um, acknowledged and the the respect and um admiration for what health professionals had to experience through the COVID pandemic, pandemic I think um, certainly supported uh, a greater caring for those who care for all of us. Um, and, you know, I'm, uh, in, in some senses, uh, the modern workplace has seemed to be getting more and more demanding, and COVID just exacerbated that my first profession over 35 years ago was in law and i was a when i was a lawyer i remember you know employers owe a duty of care to employees they need to provide a safe workplace so there seems to be in the modern workplace an outsourcing of responsibility to the individual employee for looking after their well-being but my um take on this is that we need to have multiple approaches in looking after the wellbeing of health professionals that come both from a systemic level and from an individual level. My role in it is in supporting people at an individual level, but I hate the um, discourse that we can see, and it's very destructive uh, to simply outsource responsibility for wellbeing onto the individual. Um, So, there's lots of people that need to be involved.
0: Yeah, I agree. It definitely sounds like it's a, a, a larger issue than just calling and doing a once off course. And, yeah, it sounds to me that there's obviously big growth ahead. So I guess when we look at that from a health prof- professional from a health professional perspective, what is it that we ourselves can be owning and what can we be doing in terms of training and things like that, Catherine? Mm,
1: yeah, sure. So um, the training that's available. Um, Comes in in different forms. The training that I'm most familiar with uh, focuses both on the mindfulness training and the compassion training. Um, if if we're looking primarily at mindfulness, that training supports us to develop the inherent human capacity to be present, to be grounded, to be aware of what's going on in our internal world. You know, thoughts, feelings, urges, reactions, impulses, beliefs judgments, as well as to be aware of what the external world needs of us. Uh, And mindfulness is in a healthcare um, context, especially important in expanding our capacity to be with suffering. And of course, suffering is a key component of compassion too. Um, A human's natural response to suffering, something distressing, is to turn away from it. And we need to increase the situations and the intensity and um, our capacity to stay grounded and balanced in in the face of not only suffering but all of the storms that life you know throws at us. So that's the mindfulness training. And the two of them come together very nicely in in the program that um, we work on together. But there's also we could also focus on primarily on compassion training. And that helps to develop the specific components of compassion uh, and strengthen the three flows of compassion. Um, And for some listeners, it might be surprising to think about there being three different flows of compassion. And I'll, I'll name them. And the listener might like to think for themselves as I name them, which of these three is the most comfortable for me? So the first one is when we offer compassion to another who's suffering. The second flow of compassion is when we open ourselves up to receiving compassion from another when we are suffering. And the third flow of compassion is to bring compassion to ourselves, kindness to ourselves when we are struggling, when we are suffering. And I use suffering um, quite quite loosely. It, It doesn't need to be you know, super high suffering, just all the normal little challenges of life. So for most people, um, if you're anything like the health professionals that I've worked with, you are great at that first flow of compassion, offering it to others, but you're probably not as good receiving it from others or offering it to yourself when um, situations are difficult. And that combination where you're very good at offering it to others that you're not so good at receiving it from others and not so good at giving it to others, that combination actually significantly increases your likelihood of burnout. Mm -hmm. The the research shows that when we are primed in that direction, our our likelihood of burnout increases. Through compassion training, we can get a better at distinguishing compassion from empathic distress. We can learn to uh, understand and accept the limits of our capacity to alleviate suffering, so there's a there's a, a sense of managing that activation of responsibility that happens for many of us. We can increase our wisdom uh, and see suffering with greater clarity, so that we respond more effectively, and we get better at understanding who is suffering and not to fuse with another's suffering as well. So there there are a lot of different things um, that compassion training support. And Paul Gilbert, who is one of the, Professor Paul Gilbert, who's one of the um, leading researchers and also has developed training in this area, he says, compassion gives us the courage and wisdom to descend into our suffering. So both courage and wisdom to be present. And he's talking about it with our suffering. So he's talking about it there in a, perhaps in a more self-compassion sense. But I would add, compassion gives us the courage and wisdom to descend into our suffering and the suffering of others and be with the suffering of others. Um, So in the training that I've been involved in delivering with Cancer Council, it was decided to bring together mindfulness and compassion. And that was a decision from a a research project team um, over five years ago. Members of um, that team included palliative care consultants from Bethesda, Royal Perth, um, researchers from Curtin University, Cancer Council and um, that program that we developed and are implementing um, had a couple of trials which were subject to research. All of the people going through the program were pre and post-tested on a variety of well-being measures Um, and in keeping with Other research of this nature showed a benefit to the people who were participating in the sense that anxiety levels decreased, emotional exhaustion decreased, burnout decreased significantly over time, levels of compassion, satisfaction increased, and self-compassion increased significantly over time. So undergoing the training was shown through the research to have a benefit for the people in the program. Just one last thing on that, because so many people who are health professionals are less motivated by looking after themselves and more motivated by the impact that they may have on others. There is also um, research showing that when health professionals undertake compassion training, their care for their patients is enhanced. So um, patient satisfaction increases. Um, So you can think of it as win-win. The health professional wins and so do the people in their um, care.
0: Yeah, and I can absolutely, as a participant on that course, can absolutely attest to how important it is. Um, And as you're speaking now, Catherine, all I'm thinking of is, do I continue to use it in my life? And I actually do in ways that I didn't Mm. anticipate. So I do agree, I think it does help as a health professional and also help the people that are in your care, be they patients or residents if it's residential aged care. Um, One of the other questions I had for you was around health professionals again and again, we've said about burnout and what we can do and things like that and attending compassion training. But how can we actually avoid it altogether? So maybe some preemptive steps or how can we continue to provide patients and those in our care with appropriate care in today's healthcare system when it's dealing with, you know, those things about being time poor, restricted staffing numbers, increasing demands, increase in working hours and double shifts, an aging population that need more and that are more acutely unwell? So are there any kind of tools or strategies that we can put in place ahead of schedule to avoid what we call burnout or that compassion
1: fatigue and things like that. Mm, mm -mm. Yeah. And just reiterating the point I made that um, I think this, the response to what you've identified is a systemic Mm. response and the individual can also take steps to look after. we we can take steps to look after our own wellbeing. Um, So one Thought. Here's one thought. I like the idea of doing little experiments because that sets us up not for, you know, having a huge failure when something goes wrong, but here's a little experiment. For one month, set a commitment to put into practice for yourself the advice that you might give to someone you cared about who was concerned about potential burnout. Now, I've described that experiment so that. We put ourselves in the group of people we care about. We acknowledge that it's okay to care about ourselves as well as others. Um, not to put us as more important, but also not less important that the, than the people in the group that we care about. Um, our partners, our parents, our children, our patients, our clients. All of, the, all of those people equally deserving, and us too. Um, so setting up this experiment, and I've chosen a month because uh, actually achieving what you've asked takes some behaviour change. Um, we can't do it, you know, once a month. It actually needs building of new habits, new patterns. Um, so if you were going to set yourself up in this little experiment as a way to build long-term well being, it's useful to let the people in your life know that you're doing it and why you're doing it um, that can prepare them for any changes that might surprise them you know maybe somebody else will need to cook dinner on wednesday when you do your yoga class um, it also helps enlist those people in your life as potential allies to keep you um, engaged and committed to this experiment um, so they it's a bit of an accountability mechanism, telling other people, I'm going to give this a go. And having made that commitment to yourself and set aside the month, then identify what you'll do daily, weekly, monthly to care for your needs. And the listener might think to themselves also, what advice would you give to somebody that you cared about who was concerned about burnout? Now we know that long-term sustainable well-being requires an investment of time and effort. And I suspect there'll be no surprises. It's not that we don't know the things that we need to do. It's it's the implementing them into our lives that's more difficult. So, you know, attending to sleep, taking time off our devices, building in meditation, exercise, healthy eating, time in nature all those long-term self-care strategies. In this experiment, we're not looking to strengthen acts of immediate gratification, you know, that bag of chips when you're tired and can't be bothered, um, (laughs) cooking dinner, the glass of wine, the binge on Netflix, that will happen potentially from time to time. And, you know, we bring understanding when that does happen and recommit rather than bring condemnation if if it were to happen. So, building those good habits with um, support of others, with some accountability, uh, will act as long-term deposits in our wellbeing bank account, if you like. So, those deposits build our resilience and when the proverbial hits the fan, when the storm erupts, we are much better able to be that grounded, open, caring presence rather than to go into fight or flight. Um, rather than just to be worrying about ourselves and our our, uh, very small circle of needs. Um, Yeah, so I wish I could have said something, you know, beautiful and uh, just do this, just three breaths. And I do have some smaller things that we could try as well. But I do want to emphasise that if we do want to build long-term sustainable wellbeing, for most of us it requires an attention to what we do daily. Um, And and for many of us, behaviour change, which is Mm. not so easy. And that's where maybe the self-compassion comes in as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's the behavior change I know personally is something that I always as a health professional, we like a list one to 10. Tell me the 10 points I need to do. But I Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing, Catherine, is that it's really putting that investment in yourself and making those good habits and continuing the good habits and giving them that duration. So I suppose, again, to reiterate for all our listeners Do what Catherine has said, just try it, give it a month um, and see if there's any any changes or any noted outcomes that you think are helping you. Because I think that's really, really important. Um, I have mentioned a little bit about COVID, Catherine, and thank you so, so far for this amazing conversation. But I guess as a health professional in an acute environment during COVID, Um, One of the things I could identify with others was how isolating, lonely and stressful it could be. Um, Can you talk us through some maybe tangible tips for recognising stressors? And perhaps, again, I'm asking for advice, but offer some helpful tips to avoid or how we can proactively manage um, that those stressors to kind of avoid the burnout, the compassion fatigue. So Mm -hmm. how how do we recognise them? And if we do recognise them, then what what should we do?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. So it's useful sort of to recognise, I think, that what is stressful when we're exhausted can feel like water off a duck's back—a a minor challenge. When, for example, we've just returned from our honeymoon, you know. So noting that our inner landscape, our inner world, will interact with. The external stressors. Um, in, In some ways, it's very useful to recognize that the stressors, yes, they are important, but it's more important how we handle them, how we relate to ourselves and others in a stressful situation that makes a difference. And we can learn how we handle those and we can build up capacity. And in some ways, that's where mindfulness comes into its own, because mindfulness amongst the, the, the variety of mindfulness training um, helps us to be aware of what's happening in the body when we're stressed. Mm-hmm. And as we know, there's lots of bodily signals as the body's threat system prepares us to meet a challenge. And that's what's happening in a, in a that fight, flight, freeze um, activation threat system is coming online in stressful situations. So we'll notice it in the body, you know, the initially the agitation, perhaps added energy, um, increased heart rate in those initial stages the body starts sweating those kinds of things we know initially the mind can be very focused um, but we know that if the stress continues those initial activations in the body poor, move in the opposite direction we get depleted um, and the mind rather than being very focused actually gets distracted more easily and it There's an inability to focus. So all of those are signs of whatever it is in our external environment, probably, I'm talking about external environment. We can also generate our own stress reaction through our thoughts, but I'm thinking at the moment, whatever's going on in our external environment is causing our system, body, heart, mind, to be overloaded. Mm. At an emotional level, we might feel anger, fear, frustration. It's all too much. We might even go into shutdown. Um, And so as we talked about a minute ago, um, there isn't a super quick fix, you know, just do one, two, three, no easy hack to return to that state of equilibrium where we're open and responsive, loving and peaceful. Mm. So we do need to do that, build that capacity. Um, But let's say we haven't done that. Uh, I thought that I would um, name just a few ways, a few things that we can do, more on the spot. Um, And uh, this might actually be a good place to bring in self-compassion because uh, self-compassion is not an orientation that um, most of us naturally move to. But self-compassion has been shown in the last couple of decades of research to have a major correlation with well-being. There's now over 4,000 peer-reviewed academic pa- papers, including clinical trials. So we're not talking about some Mickey Mouse concept. We're talking about a, a concept which is being um, clearly articulated, developed, and researched in clinical trials. With self-compassion, and so I am I guess I'm offering self-compassion as one of the things that we can build to support us, respond to stressful environments, and head off burnout. You know, we can learn to change our ways of relating to ourselves in times of stress, when we are struggling, when we fail, when we have health problems. Um, the 10,000 sorrows of life are just as inevitable as the 10,000 joys. One of the um, orientations of self-compassion is to see that life hasn't gone wrong when things don't work out in the way that we hope, whether it's in our family or at work, in the larger society. So whatever difficult experience we're experiencing at the moment, recognizing that this is part of the human condition, that other people will be experiencing something similar at the same time. recognising our common humanity when we're struggling can support us to feel less isolated, less a failure, and also support us to to bring that care and kindness to ourselves, which is another component of self-compassion. And what that care and kindness will look like has many faces, including that um, experiment I just mentioned of taking that month to look after yourself but let's say you haven't done that and you've just arrived at work after a tricky morning with your children who refused to go to school that you've so you've already used up some of your resilient capacity there you arrive at work a colleague calls in sick and there's an unusually complicated family meeting concerning a patient or resident who is dying now we don't control much of our external environment the kids refusing to go to school, colleague being sick, tricky meeting. We don't control much of what automatically arises in our inner world either, the emotions, the urges, the reactions, the judgments. We're conditioned by our genetics. We're conditioned by our family of origin and the environment we're in. We all feel threatened in certain situations and we'll go into fight, flight, freeze. But what we do have as humans, is this huge prefrontal cortex that enables us to learn to relate more skillfully to the situations we find ourselves in and our inner reactions. We can learn to insert a space between the reaction and the response. Now, as I mentioned, it's preferable to have built some capacity in this through dedicated mindfulness and compassion practice. So we're already familiar with that practice of, and the experience of intentionally becoming grounded, intentionally stabilizing attention. Um, But here are some ideas for more on the spot practices. um, When we find that we're upregulated, our nervous system is activated, um, and these are practices that have been shown by research to make a difference. The first one is pretty simple, extend the exhale. Now you might try that as you listen, It's nothing fancy. Simply ensure that the exhalation is a little longer than the inhalation. The exhalation is connected to the parasympathetic nervous system, relaxation, whereas the inhalation is connected to the sympathetic nervous system, activation. So simply extending the exhale moves us a little bit in that direction. First, on the spot practice. Um, another practice that we can do on the spot, and again, you can try it as, as you listen to this, is to bring your attention down from the head. It, most of us experience um, thinking and worrying and, you know, rumination in the head. So it's very useful not to stay in those looping thoughts and those worries, but to move. So bring the attention down, as if the attention is a a lift or an elevator. Feeling your attention move down from the head, through the neck, through the shoulders, through the torso, the hips, into the legs, and down to the feet. And pausing for a moment where your feet are making contact with the floor, really feeling that contact. So this mini practice removes the fuel, our thinking, that keeps agitation and anxiety going, at least for a moment. It's as if we've pressed a reset button and we now have a little bit more bandwidth available to respond to the situation at hand. And if it's something we do repeatedly, that becomes more and more available. The reset becomes stronger. We are longer able to stay in grounded presence. So a third little um, practice is Many of us have to walk to the next thing. We we walk to the next meeting. We walk to a patient or resident's room. We walk to a visiting area to greet a bereaved family member. And we can use that short walk as an opportunity to ground, to practice mindfulness. But as you're in the corridor or wherever it is walking, bringing the attention into the sensations of the body walking, feeling the legs moving, the arms moving, the feet touching the floor. So this anchoring of our attention on something neutral, out of the story, out of the worry, out of the thinking, brings us into a more grounded place. And that increases our presence, our capacity to be able to respond to the situation. When you get to the door, when the hand touches the doorknob, pause and remember how you want to meet that person, the care that you'd like to embody, and bringing that into the body, heart, mind. So there's a, a few little practices.
0: Thank you, Catherine. I was actively trying to do everything as you were talking us all through it.
1: Mm,
0: great. I, I definitely think those are things that are transferable in any health professional's daily life, mm. um, whether they're, it's tertiary care or whether it's residential aged care, as you said, or whether it's mm. primary practice. There's so much there that I think our audience hopefully will will find useful. Um I guess with each episode, we tend to provide our our listeners with websites and links that may be helpful. And again, I'll always um advise our our listeners to go to the Pace website to to see when our mindfulness based compassion training for health professionals course is on, because obviously that's the one that as that you referred to earlier, Catherine. And obviously that's the the course that Catherine um facilitates and runs for the Pace team on behalf of us Cancer Council, which is so well. Um, received but are there any other helpful websites or links that you would suggest health professionals could maybe go to if they wanted to take that more proactive road to assisting themselves or anything that you
1: think they should watch or read sure um I've mentioned self-compassion and I think because self-compassion is such a a change agent for us in our well-being Um, i would recommend the center for mindful self-compassion set up by kristen neff and chris germer Um, great resources great research great great website there's also headspace which has a variety of different articles resources um, mindfulness practices meditations uh, and maybe the compassionate mind foundation which um, is connected with Professor Paul Gilbert, who I mentioned as well. And then lots of universities are doing compassion and mindfulness research, but not everybody is so interested in the the research. Stanford Uni has a center for compassion, altruism research and education. Um, Even in Australia, there are a a number of unis which have um, centers. There's Compassionate Mind Research Group at the University of Queensland and Monash has a center for consciousness and contemplative studies. Um, so there's some. There are there are there are a heap, but I think for healthcare professionals, there might be some that are interesting. That's amazing. Thank you, Catherine.
0: And I will link all of those websites and um, things that you've mentioned to our webpage for health professionals, should anybody want to have a, a quicker road of getting there. Um, I guess I finish every podcast um, asking what my guests are hopeful for. So I think it would be very fitting to finish our third podcast episode with asking you, Dr. Catherine Trules, what are you hopeful for?
1: Mm, I hope you don't mind if I slightly reframe it to what am I hopeful when? Um, Perfect. (laughs) So I'm hopeful when I hear my great nieces who are, Five, six, seven, using Noongar names for the birds in their backyard. Kubadi, um, Chidi-Chidi, Karak. And for people who aren't from the southwest of Western Australia, Noongar is the language of the First Nations people um, in the southwest of Western Australia. That gives me great hope. I'm hopeful when I learn that there are still Palestinian and Jewish peace activists continuing to do their work amidst the atrocities. I'm hopeful when I see people of all ages at the wetlands across the road from where I live, delighting when they spot a quenda, a bandicoot in that area. So I'm hopeful for, I think, those kinds of real human uh, connection and um, respect and love and peace uh, across difference.
0: I think that's really fitting and especially in such a trying time at the moment with um, all of the changes that are happening not only in our state and in Australia but also worldwide as you've mentioned Catherine. Um, I guess that's it then for our, our podcast today. I'll wish you all a happy a happy day um, wherever you are and Catherine, thank you for joining us Um, you've you've left me with profound questions again um, <laughs> and I definitely feel I have a lot more questions for you that we should uh, take up perhaps on another feature early next year, um, but thank you for joining us and thank you for lending us your invaluable knowledge again and sharing with us your. Hints and tips and the the positive things that we can do to help ourselves as health professionals.
1: My pleasure, Claudine. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. And that concludes
0: today's episode. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um hopefully you found it engaging and insightful. Should you have any queries or questions for any of the guests that we've had featured so far or myself or the team, feel free to get in contact with us through email. That's Pace, P-A-S-C-E at cancerwa.asn.au. Similarly, you can find our webpage through www.pace.com.au. Here you'll be able to find a list of our events, upcoming education sessions, and if or when we're coming to a town or regional area near you. Um, You can also subscribe to our newsletter, um, which it will allow you to do on the webpage and engage with our learning management system through free e-learning, additional resources, discussion boards. Uh, We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. So until next time, keep up with the pace.